Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, 2 Samuel 12, it goes like this. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and, and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him, and a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. So David, in chapter 11, we got to see kind of the fall of David. He'd been following after God, doing a great job from childhood all the way up. His kingship was thriving. Israel gets solidified. They get armies that draw peace on every corner of Israel, and then he, he is basically lets the sin that's been in his heart for a long time get its way, right? Because he'd been taking in many wives for quite a while, and that spirit of sin that had been in him for a long time, it finally became destructive in his life, just like sin does. So David's sin displeased the Lord at the end of chapter 11, and David ignored what he knew to be right, and now God sends another faithful brother. And you think Nathan just kind of comes in, and he's a prophet, so he's been able to hear from the Lord, and it's been tested and seen to be true. So he shows up to, uh, to David, and frankly, this is God, I think, having mercy on David. Like, God loves David. He's displeased with the sin, but he loves the person. So he does this. He sends Nathan to him. It says the Lord sent Nathan, so we know this is God intervening on behalf of somebody that's fallen short. And Nathan, we know from 2 Samuel 7, he's a friend to David. He's been with him for a while. He brings blessings. There's a relationship. When a brother comes to admonish a brother, it really helps to have relationship, right? There's nothing worse than a Christian telling other people how to live when they don't have a relationship with them, right? So Nathan knows David. He's known him for a long time. And it takes a brother to be able to say that. Or frankly, on the lady's side, it takes a sister sometimes that you've known for a long time to really admonish you on an area in your life that you need some help. This is an area of David's life he needs a lot of help, right? He's been, he, you know, his, his lust took him to murder and everything else. Um, the way he frames the story here, I just want to point this out. Of all the sins that happen with David, the framing of the example that Nathan gives is one of theft, right? This guy stole that, that lamb. And that image of theft is something that comes because adultery is essentially stealing intimacy from whoever that person is supposed to be with, right? And we noticed in the last chapter that they kept saying Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife. They didn't necessarily use Bathsheba except to introduce her, right? Because Uriah was responsible for this woman. Uriah had him in, her in his household. So when David does this, he's stealing. Uh, murder is stealing a life. Adultery is stealing intimacy or a relationship. Coveting is stealing away from God the contentment that you should have. And all of these sins are a sin against God at the end of the day. So Nathan frames it. I like the phrase that he has in there in, in, in verse 2. One little you lamb. One little baby lamb. Right? It's like he's talking about a stuffed animal almost. Lambs are usually out in the field and they're kind of stanky and nasty. And then you take the fur off them and you've got to clean that cotton before you use it. But in this case, this would be a domesticated lamb. Took him into his house, gave him his food from his own cup, and lay with him in his bosom. This guy took this lamb to bed with him, right? This is a pet lamb. Now that would be, you'd comb that lamb, it would have nice soft fur. Um, an image almost of Passover where they took the lamb into the house. But that idea that this is the thing that was stolen was something that was precious. It's why Uriah was loyal to David is because he was because his loyalty was precious, his honor was precious, his wife was precious. And what David did was so horrible. So verse four, it's interesting how Nathan doesn't judge David. He just puts the situation in front of him. See that? There's no judgment that what was done here was wrong. 
He's waiting for the king to pass judgment. So he tells the story almost like it actually happened. And David then, like a king, he makes a judgment call. Verse 5, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing, because he had no pity. The problem in this situation is a lack of concern for other people. The problem with what David did is a lack of concern for Uriah, for Bathsheba. So he says, as the Lord lives, it's a way to make this an emphatic. There should be an exclamation point at the end of uh, um, chapter uh, or verse 5. Um, the man who, uh, the conviction, <laughs> just a thought on this. It's really easy to see problems in other people when they're your problems. There's something about when we're in sin, we conceal it to ourselves, but it's super easy to spot it in other people. It's almost like there's a conscience and a guilt there that needs to be awakened. Or in this sense, in verse 5, it's, his anger was aroused. So instead of being mad at himself, he's mad at this person he doesn't even know because it's been brought up. And look at what's been done here. And the judgment that David passes comes from a place where his conscience knows that this is the judgment he should have. But in this case, it seems like David's fairly oblivious to that, that it takes one to know one kind of situation. And he starts seeing the speck in each other's eye. I got Luke 6, 42 here too. It's just a New Testament. How, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove that speck in your eye when you yourself don't see the plank that's in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye. Before we criticize other people, we should be double-checking where we're at. And how are we doing on things? So David is quick to anger, and he ha he's not being reflective, and he's getting the speck out of this rich man's eye before he's dealing with the plank in his own eye. You shall surely die is David adding to the word of God. The consequence for theft or the theft of a sheep is to return it fourfold. It's in Exodus 22.1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If David's acting as king and judiciating the law, he should have said the rich man owes the poor man four sheep. But he adds to it. And he adds to it because the sheep is precious to this person. So as a judge, a Jewish judge could tweak that law, add to it, take away to it based on the circumstances of the law being administered. But in this case, David's going way too far with it. So he's taking the law and he's adding to God's word and he's passing judgment. He doesn't know it yet, but he's passing judgment on himself. And if death's the appropriate thing here, that should be coming his way too. Verse 6, because he had no pity. So David assumes that pity is the right disposition, yet he doesn't have it himself. Okay, and then verse 7, here's the, Nathan's response. <laughs> I like that it starts out with you the man, but it's not a good thing. Like when we say that, it's a good thing. When Nathan says it to David, that's not a good thing. Then David, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. And, you, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, so God's going to pass judgment. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel before the son. It's interesting, we're just in Ecclesiastes. where They talk about under the son as a phrase. And, and maybe that's getting taken from this in part. Um, but this seems to be a phrase that's getting to be popular in David's generation. And when Solomon's writing Ecclesiastes, he's still using that kind of language. Um, but before the sun is, I'm going to do it right now in this life. I'm not waiting till the judgment seat or the next life. I'm going to do it right now because people need to see what's going on. So he explains it clearly. Nathan flips the story again. He doesn't give his own judgment. David, Nathan simply conveys what he's claiming the Lord says to David. So he's coming in with this word. God reminds David then of his love and his blessings. Verse 7, I did all these things for you. And I think sometimes when God convicts us, 
He reminds us of the fact that he loves us before. It's like a compliment sandwich, right? I'm gonna, I did all these nice things for you, and then you sinned against me, and then here's the consequences. And there's some mercy in those consequences. For starters, it doesn't look like God's going to kill David, which is what he said should happen, right? So there's a little bit of mercy. Verse 8, it says, your master's house. In this culture, that everyone who lives in the house is part of who you're responsible to take care of. Like they got really, really big families, but they also had houses. So they might have servants in that house or people that didn't have families that they've taken in. So when he talks about this idea of all these people that God would have given him much more, there's also a piece here that people can take this out of context and say, see, God approves of polygamy. We've had that topic a couple times. I want to point out here, he just says, um, you, I, th- these things were given into your house. You have your master's wives in your keeping. So that doesn't necessarily mean God's condoning polygamy. It means you have men and women living in your house that you're responsible for. They're in your keeping. That doesn't mean intimacy with every single one. Of course, we know David had multiple wives. But in this particular case, God's, I think, careful with his language there. Verse 9 says, why have you despised? If we love God, we keep his commandments. So verse 9 says, you despised my commandments. Verse 10 says, you've despised me. You see how God uses those interchangeably? It's amazing when we get Christians that say, oh, I love the Lord Jesus, but here's commandments I don't worry about because they're Old Testament. And they do some of the commandments, but not others. God sees it very differently. You either follow his law or you don't. And if you're going to choose which commandments you're going to follow and which ones you aren't, that's not being all in for Christ. That's despising commandments. And God sees that as the same thing as despising him. You've killed Uriah. God goes right at it. He doesn't bounce around on this at all. David, you killed Uriah. And David could argue, well, I didn't actually kill him myself. So God says it a second time, you know, based, oh, here's the list for that. Says it kind of again, saying you used the Ammonite sword to do it. So yeah, God sees what you did there. And he holds him accountable for it. Verse 10 is the consequence. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. You use the sword on Uriah, the sword's not going to leave your house. The sword that David used on Uriah was manipulative and tricky and subtle. Well, his sons are going to start doing the same things to each other starting in the next chapter. It says, I will raise up adversity. That's a tough verse for me. That means God is claiming through Nathan that he will raise up adversity for someone he loves. This is what we call a trial. So sometimes there's there's this weird idea that God never causes trials in our life. It's just not biblical especially in the case where God's got to refine us with our sin. Like part of the reason we try to live in purity is so we don't need that kind of trial. Like I'd rather just live without the trials, thank you. So living purely is a way to do that. But according to verse 11, God's going to raise up adversity and we're going to see through the next few chapters how that plays out. In doing that, I don't think God forces anybody to do anything they wouldn't already do, but there's this process by which it happens. So In this case, there's a trial. Does God cause trials? Yep, he does. And here's an example of it. Unlike our flesh that consumes us or the evil that tries to destroy us, God's trials will temper and train us. So when we go through bad things in life, I think it's good to ask, is this me causing my own issues? Is this the enemy trying to get in the way of my ministry for the Lord? Or is this the Lord trying to send me a message? And if so, I got to react to that accordingly. And so he says, I'll take your wives. God, I think, is doing surgery with David. Like, okay, you crossed the line. Now we're going to fix this. And take it, it sounds almost like taking away David's wives is a punishment. But think about the punishment. He's taking away the sin out of David's life. Okay, now we're going to throw that garbage that got you in trouble in the first place, right? That, that collection of whatever you were keeping, it's just going to have to go, right? And I'm not saying these wives are garbage. That was the wrong way to say this. He's going to get rid of the problem that David had in the first place, which was taking too many wives. And David's going to get those wives narrowed down considerably, and God's going to make that happen in his life. So the things causing sin need to go. And that's part of God's trial. Verse 12, you did it secretly. Sin loves to be done in secret. The more secrets we keep, the more we don't share with each other what we're struggling with, the more it's going to be just taking a life of its own in our life. That's why you have parents to talk to. It's why you have a brother or sister in the faith to talk to. It's why you have pastors you can go talk to, right? We, or, or even just men and women that you regard and respect in the faith. If there's sin that's plaguing your life, share it. Get it off your chest. It's why the Catholics do the confessional, which I think is a little bit like 
impersonal, but God made us to have brothers and sisters in the faith so we can deal with it. And I'm not saying publicly declare your sin in groups of large people, right? If it's a private sin, maybe privately just do that. But get it in the open with another believer. Get it where it's on the table. At the very least, that other believer can pray for you, right? So God's saying, David, what you did in secret, I'm going to make this public. So his worst fear was that his sins would be made public. Do you have a sin in your life where your worst fear would be that everybody would know about it? And God's saying, okay, we're going to let that baby go. Let's see what happens when we let everybody know what your sin was. And the end result is there's still you and there's still God. And, it, and it's not as bad as you thought it would be, right? Verse 12, for you did it. God levels the accusation because it's true. And avoiding that truth isn't going to help anything. So Nathan said, to, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Oh, how different this is from Saul. Remember Saul when he got called out? Right? This is totally, like, Saul is the example of what not to do. David sins also, and this is the example of how to do it. This is why we know David has a heart that does seek after God. This is the difference between the godly and the ungodly. David and Saul. This is the difference between Peter and Judas, as we're doing Matthew in the mornings. It's really simple. In the Hebrew there, that's hara el Yahweh. I've sinned against the Lord. It's very simple. It's not as many words as in the English. Hara el, el Yahweh. No excuses. No explanations. No reasons for why he did it. Right? This is my temptation when I'm confessing, or usually I'm confessing to my wife, but when I mess up or do something, my strong temptation is to explain why I did it. Who cares why I did it? It's the fact that it was done. That's the problem. Everybody has reasons for sin. The fact that it got done, get rid of the excuses. Just admit it. Nobody really wants the excuses anyways. He realizes it. He confesses it. And it doesn't need a lot of works. Big, elaborate confessions. I don't know if some like spiritual traditions, they have this where you get up on the stage and it's this like 10-minute thing about how evil and horrible you are. Like David doesn't give that kind of confession. It's very simple. Hada el Yahweh. I'm guilty. I sinned against the Lord. So most kings, kings of this era would simply kill Nathan. David not only doesn't kill Nathan, he respects Nathan. And it's the difference between a godly leader and an ungodly leader. And this doesn't show that David's perfect, but it does show that he has his heart in the right place, right? And, you know, I, I like to think that David was already feeling pretty guilty because he was hiding it all. He already knew this stuff was wrong. So when Nathan comes out and he knows that God knows and, and, God, and he knows that Nathan knows because of God, the cat's out of the bag, he can just start to make it right and move on with it. David uses the word I I sinned against the Lord, uses personal responsibility. He, he uses direct language. He doesn't say, I backslid, or I made a mistake, or I was in error, or the enemy got me, you know, Satan tricked me. He says, I have sinned, nobody else, no other language. And, he, and then he puts it in the right place, against the Lord. He could have said, I sinned against Bathsheba, I sinned against Uriah, and that would be true. But at the end of the day, he's going to start making things right by saying, I sinned against the Lord. I was called by the Lord for a mission, as have every one of us in this room. We've been called out by God to do something in our lives, and this kind of sin wrecks the mission, and it gets in the way of what we're supposed to do. So with Nathan, he spends more time, <laughs> I think, with this, and, uh, and he starts to write about it. So if you want the long version of this, you can do a little Bible study this week on Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he, he writes a much more elaborate apology to the Lord and really nails down what he did and how he did it. Um, we know these verses. I'm just going to read a couple. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. When we sin, even when we repent of it and turn, it's always in front of us. Like we know sinners, those of us in this room, where that sin, those pasts, they plague us for the rest of our life. One of the downsides is big sins like this. You're always going to have it. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. God despises the sin. He loves the sinner. 
And David's reacting in the same way towards He knows that about his Lord. He talks about his loving kindness, right? When we get rebuked, our tendency is to either hide and cower or to get mad at the person that rebuked us. What a beautiful thing to find a man of God that actually appreciates the rebuke and treats it as love because that's what it is. Nobody wants to rebuke you. So when somebody actually comes out and admonishes or rebukes you, it's not like people wake up in the morning and say, boy, I'd really like to rebuke Paul today. No, I don't do that, Paul, because I love Paul. But there's times where as a brother, you're like, Paul, we got to talk, right? And that's not something that person wants to do. So for David to react with this understanding that that's an act of love shows what kind of guy he was. Compare, again, compare this to Saul where he starts throwing spears whenever he feels the, the urge, right? And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just immediate forgiveness. Hada el Yahweh, you're forgiven. And that's the same thing as with Jesus. Jesus, I'm sorry, I repent. You're forgiven. And it's instant. Verse 14, however, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. And then Nathan departed to his house. Like Nathan doesn't want to stick around. He gives the bad news at the end. Here's the bad news. God forgives David, but there's still consequences for the sin. And this is just right understanding of how things go. People think they can sin against God again and again and again, and that, they can, that, that doesn't have an impact. And the impact that's here is going to, I think, be twofold. One is that he's going to lose some credibility because all the enemies of the Lord are going to use this against David for a long time to come. You're not, a, you're not as righteous as you say you are. He lost the high ground. And the second major consequence is he's got sons and daughters that are watching his behavior, and they're going to model his behavior. So as a father, a, ho- a head of a household, he's going to lose the respect of his children because they're going to say, if my dad can do it, why can't I? Right? If it's okay with him, it's okay with me. So the Lord puts away the sin, throws it as far as the east is for the west. He takes away the death thing, which is not part of the law. The law does not say that uh, David should die for, the, uh, for the, uh, the lying or the sheep, but he should die for the murder of Uriah and the adultery. Those are both death sentences. So God forgives David of the death sentence, even though it wasn't in Nathan's narrative. Um, and then even in this forgiveness, then there's going to be a price that gets paid. So that price is there. Usually children, the the children of Bathsheba, the one that is the product of the adultery, usually children in the ancient world were a blessing. They're just seen as a blessing. The more children, the better, largely because they can work the farm, right? Or they can work the the herds. So the more children you had, the wealthier your farm became because you just had more hands on deck. And that was just how it is. There's some families that think that today, but I just want to make sure we're clear that children are a blessing to the family. In this case, God's going to take this child home and David's not going to get to enjoy him, right? And usually uh, the Jewish, in Jewish tradition, I think in Christian too, there's what's called an age of accountability. When an innocent dies or someone that's too young to make their own decisions, there's a certain grace that God gives. We're born into the flesh and we're born into sin, but God's going to take those people and there's going to be accommodation made for them. So the Jewish people felt that the age of accountability was when you could read the Torah and understand what it said. So if you can understand the law, you're accountable to the law. And for Jews, that was around age 13 or 14 years old. So if you're going to make major sins, you do it before you're 12, right? Is the kind of the rule. It varies. If you can understand the law, you can break the law. Verse, uh, actually the end of 15, right? And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David. Notice they're still using Uriah's wife there. And it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Why is he doing this? Later it's going to tell us he did it because he, because he knows God, he knows that God can have mercy. That these judgments, though they're just under the law, it's the right thing to do, that God can relent of some of those things. So David's actually got then a child of his that's paying the punishment for his sins. I think God knows what that feels like. God knows the anguish of that, right? And for David, it's like, why should this kid die because I did something wrong? So he's begging him. He's on the ground. Verse 17, the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. He's fasting too. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. 
For they said, Indeed, when the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we then tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. If he's this bad with the child being sick, think of how bad he's going to be when he's dead. But they're thinking like the world. We Believers, we don't think like that. The time to pray is when they're sick, when they're dead. It's, okay, well, they're with God. It's all over. And that's what happens with David. How can we tell him that child's dead? He might do some harm. Verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead because he's not dumb, right? They're all in the corner going, he's like, he's dead, isn't he? Yeah, they, so they say, therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And waiting to see what David would do. Nathan says it, it happens, just to note that that's a fulfillment of prophecy. David's going to pay fourfold uh, for this, and this is the first of four of his kids that's going to die. So he loses, we'll, we'll just keep track as they happen. God can and does call people home, calls them home in his own time. Uh, in this case, uh, David is mourning that this is happening. The child then serves as a redemption price or a propitiation for David's sin. And as harsh as that is to hear, the idea of propitiation is one we depend on because God sent his only son for our sins and for what we've done. So it's this concept that comes up in the Bible. This kind of story uh, brings it to life in a way that when it happens through Jesus, the Jews all understand exactly what happened there. So God doesn't ask humans to make the sacrifice. I, Abraham and Isaac really plays that out. With Abraham and Isaac, God got Abraham to see if he was willing to sacrifice his son, but he never makes Abraham actually do it. And in this case, he does not make David sacrifice his son. God takes the son home all on his own. So in this case, when God's going to take somebody home, he doesn't make humans do that for him all the time. Okay, so that execution of justice, God takes care of it. Um, when she became pregnant, the writer's really careful to note that Uriah's wife is there. Um, there's this idea that a husband belongs to a wife and a wife belongs to a husband. When they're married, you belong to each other. And just to nail that home, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, nevertheless, I'm saying this because we have people that are really excited about this idea that a husband would own a wife. And I just want to point out, it goes two ways. The wife owns the husband too. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to the wife the affection that's due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It goes two ways. Don't deprive one another except with consent for a time that you might give yourselves for fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Specifically in the realm of sexual life, you belong to your spouse. So the Bible, I think, back even in the Old Testament, uses that kind of language. Uriah had a wife. She was his and he was hers. So when David got into this, he was doing it. David pleads in verse 16. There's that child of pleading, then the son dies. So David arose from the ground, verse 20, and washed and, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes because he's been laying on the ground for seven days. That's, that's dirty. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped and then he went into, into his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then the servant said to him, what is it that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? Yeah, because the child's with God. There's nothing left to mourn. Like the hardest part of death is that season right before it. And for those of us, who are, if you've had family members where you've had to go to the hospital and visit them, the hardest period is watching them go through pain. And it's not a good thing. Death is a curse and it's horrible. So David's struggling and praying and fasting for the kid to recover from an illness. But when the recovery doesn't happen, that's another kind of freedom. And if you believe that there is an eternal life waiting for you after death, this isn't such a tragic moment. And it's not for David. Like he gets up and goes about his business. And I like that the first place he goes is to the house of God. That's hard to do. When you've just gotten disciplined, to go back to the person who disciplined you and give them a hug, that's not easy to do. And it, and it shows a, a contrite spirit. And, and again, you look at the Psalms and you see where David's at. He goes straight to God because he knows that God is good. I shouldn't admit this, but when the kids were little and we did have to like discipline them, we'd always, like, we always thought it was more about the heart. 
So we'd let them know, we're going to discipline you. And here's why. Here's what you've did. We kind of followed this model. And then we'd like hold them for a good 10 seconds or so saying, are you ready? Here it comes. And then the spank would be nothing. It would be like waterworks of tears instantly, right? And the kids did say that I spanked harder than mom did. So if you got to get spanked, have mom spank you and not dad. Yes? But the idea was the heart, right? And, and, and that idea of like changing the heart. But I got to admit, the good part about discipline is we let the kids get hugs and loves for as long as they wanted after it happened because we wanted that relationship restored. When David goes back to the house of God, that had to, be, that had to warm God's heart a little bit, right? I don't want to discipline you. We would say that too. I don't want to do this, but I have to. It has to get dealt with, right? But I want to I restore that relationship as quick as possible. And you just see David run into his God saying, I love you. I want the blessing. So David sees the judgment, he sees the sickness of the sin, he repents of it, he, he, takes, he, he prays for mercy, but when the punishment comes, he deals with it, and he moves on. And he said, verse 22, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child might live? But now he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he won't return to me. And David just kind of tells the servants in the house, like, look, it's over, there's nothing to pray for anymore. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. Notice the change of title that just happened. Now that the adultery has been taken care of, now Bathsheba is David's wife. Because the least you can do is take somebody in and give her a home and not just cast her aside. So he went into her and he lay with her. Um, that's a little different description than we saw in the last chapter. This is a legit night for a, mar- a husband and wife. Like they're going to make it legal. And you could say, well, there's sin in their past. No, no, no. They're going to go forward and they're not going to sin anymore. And I think that's how God does it. God, once he's forgiven you, that sin is in the past. And that idea of move forward and stop doing it is the same way Jesus dealt with the prostitute, right? Or the woman caught in adultery. I shouldn't say prostitute. The woman caught in adultery, right? And he, and he says, stop doing it and sin no more. And let's move forward with life and do it according to God's law. And let's take this day moving forward. So David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. Now God loved him. Now the Lord loved him. And and it's not clear if the Lord loved Solomon. I think that's what the verse is saying there. Or if the Lord loved David, right? It's not entirely clear which. I think we could say either way works. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Um, Bathsheba is the wife at this point. She's named as David's wife, um, and he goes in there. Can somebody look up for me? I Goodness sakes, I thought I did this, but it's not actually in my notes. What's Solomon's name mean in the Hebrew? And what's Jedidiah mean in the Hebrew? Jedidiah is loved by the Lord because that's the name Nathan came. Peace is Solomon. Oh, and so David names the son Peace because guess what he's going through right now? He's he's recaptured his peace with the Lord and names the son accordingly. Um, Jedidiah doesn't really get used anywhere else, but it is kind of a nickname or a a name that God gave him um, because God loves this son and he loves this, uh, this new kid that got made. Now Joab fought against Rabbah and the people of Ammon. And took the royal city, and Joab sent messengers to David and said, I've fought against Rabbah, and I've taken the city's water supply. It's interesting that Joab is, this is still the battle that Joab was fighting back when David got in trouble with Bathsheba. This is the battle David didn't show up to, and there is something delaying the conquest here. But Joab's like, we took the water supply, and what that means in the ancient world is, they're about to go down, because without water in the Middle East, you're not going to last very long, and your soldiers won't last long. Verse 28, now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. I think this is a good buddy prodding his friend because Joab and David have been hanging out together a long time and Joab's like, if you don't get here to take the city, I'm going to tape it and it'll be the city of Joab. And I think that Joab knows what, what to do here with David to get him back on track. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. It seems like part of the repentance of David is to not sit on his roof looking at ladies anymore. 
right? Part of what he's got to do is he's got to get out and fight the battles of the Lord that he was supposed to be fighting at the beginning of this whole journey. So I think that's something like when people find themselves falling away from the Lord or backsliding, what was the last time that you felt close to the Lord where you knew you were doing his work? Get back to that spot and start from where you left off and pick up at that spot. Then verse 30, then he took their crown from the king, the crown, the king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold. That's like a hundred pounds. That is a heavy crown with precious stones. And it was set on David's head. And he also brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it. And he put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So he gets a new workforce for a number of different trades, and he puts them all to work. This is different, again, than the pagan world. A lot of times they would just slaughter everybody. And we've seen in the Bible instances where people get killed, where even David has cut the city down in half. He doesn't do that with Ammon. Like, he puts them all to work, and he says this is a workforce. It's very likely that David, at this point, is once again praying and asking the Lord what to do in each situation. Because there seems to be different things that he does with each city. Then we get to 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 12. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister. Okay, this is still part of the same narrative, right? Because it says after this. So the first child died was the, the child that was born in that adulterous situation. And then God blesses him with Solomon, peace, and restores that relationship. And Bathsheba's got a home to live in. So that, that part's been renewed. But now we have this second part of the consequence, which is David's got kids watching how he operates. And they're going to start operating the same way. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Okay? Do you get the family relationship on that? So they're half-sisters and half-brothers. Uh, Absalom and Tamar in 2 Samuel 3, verse 3. Uh, Maaka is the princess of Geshur. So she's a foreign wife that David took. So Absalom and Tamar are both children of that foreign wife. Amnon is David's his dad, uh, and he's the firstborn son. He's the crown prince at this time. He's the oldest, eldest of David's sons. Um, and he's born of Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, from 2 Samuel 3, verse 2. So you got... Two different mothers, but they're the same father, so half-siblings. It is not uncommon amongst these pagan, against pagan cultures for, actually it's, it's common all the way up through like the English aristocracy to intermarry this closely is something that they would do because that way they would keep the crown in the family. So these kinds of things weren't uncommon in that world, and frankly, they, they remain common in royalty uh, all the way up into modern history. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick. Notice that the Bible calls Tamar Amnon's sister. It doesn't bother with the half stuff, right? So this is off limits. He became sick for she was a virgin and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. A rare occasion in the history is that the writer tells us that this is what's about to happen is wrong. So we don't read this and say, see, it's okay to have interrelations with your half-siblings. Um, the Bible is very clear. This is not okay. It's improper. And they knew that it was improper and that's what bothered him. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. So his uncle right? Okay. Now, Jonadab was a crafty man and said to him, why are you the king's son becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Okay. Notice how sin starts on this one. He doesn't say my sister. He says my brother Absalom's sister. He's already mentally putting a distance between him and her at least relationally. Uh, Jonadab is a crafty man. Few people get that title in the Bible. Uh, subtle, wily, but with a great intelligence. So it's a negative use of God-given intelligence. It's crafty. So we see that kakam is the word, and it, and it is one of the things you see when somebody's given that title, that intelligence in human beings isn't always a blessing. Sometimes it's the opposite. Great intelligence can be used for great sin. And intelligence itself is a tool. It's like a lot of other, it's like money. It can be used for good or it can be used for bad. 
It's not necessarily the case that a smart person is a godly person. And, and in this case, this guy is crafty, and he's definitely causing chaos in David's house, and David's his brother. So why would he cause this kind of trouble? Because he does. Also notice that Amnon says, I love Tamar. Guys and girls, especially my single folks, this is not love, right? So he uses the word love, but he has no idea what that means. Be careful of that. Watch out for these people, right? Because they'll use the right language to get what they want. But we're going to see later, this has nothing to do with love. So Jonadab says to him, verse 5, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. So you're going to lie. That's one of the Ten Commandments. You shouldn't do that. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I might see it and eat it from her hand. Frankly, this is weird. (laughs) Lustful guys get weird right? And they do weird stuff. Like this doesn't, why are you doing this? And I think this is where girls are like, guys are weird, right? You're doing these weird, crazy things, right? I want to eat from her hand. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon says to the king, please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I might eat from her hand, right? First of all, if a guy says, I want to eat from your hand, I would just avoid this guy. You save yourself a lot of trouble. So it doesn't say anything about how Amnon responds to Jonadab. It's he just, Jonadab gives the advice and he just does it. There's no judgment. This is not a crown prince, right? He's not trained up well in the way of God. So to make this kind of demand is a childish demand. Here's the other thing. When people demand, like when children say, no, I want my peanut butter and jelly with the crust cut off, or when people demand that they eat in a certain way, that's immaturity. Right? So that alone should have been, David should have been like, no, you don't get to eat. You don't get to choose. If you're sick, you can eat the food we put there. It's not all about you. So there's so many ways this could be avoided. This indulgence of childlike behavior is a sign of an absentee parent. David hasn't raised this kid and he doesn't know how to say no to this kid. He doesn't want the conflict. So wish fulfillment. Oftentimes you see parents that don't spend a lot of time with their kids. They kind of give their kids everything because they just don't want to have conflict with the kid. That small amount of time they spend with them, they want it to be happy and cheerful. So they give the kid everything. So David doesn't say no to Amnon, which he should have. Frankly, you'd think David would see this coming a little bit, and he would want to protect the girls in his household. right? So again, David's part of this whole story, and I think this is part of how God's working things out. God, David's sins are going all through his life. They're not just in the area of Bathsheba. So David sent home to Tamar saying, now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. He doesn't, David doesn't share the command eating from your hand. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down and then she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat, right? So he lied about the conditions, right? It wasn't just the, he didn't want to just eat from her hand. Right? There's a subtle subtext here of what's going on. Um, his intention isn't eating. His intention, frankly, is to have his way with Tamar. And then Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Mistake from, what are we on now? Mistake number four? Right? Ladies, if a guy wants to be alone with you, you should question that. Why does he want to be alone with you? Why can't you go on a double date? Right? Why do you have to be in, this, why do you have to be in a bedroom with him by yourself? And this is another instance where, like, this is a warning sign. And frankly, I'm saying these warning signs because David should have been tuned into this. Absalom should have been tuned into this, right? Tamar's just making cakes. She hasn't done anything wrong. So she brings him in. She's taking care of her brother, thinking that it's maybe innocent. But he says, then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I might eat from your hand. It's creepy, creepy. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. And now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, sister. Okay, now we're moving fast, creepy, and he makes his move. Um, I want to point out the differences between this narrative and David and Bathsheba. We did David and Bathsheba, and remember I said there's no indication of rape here? With, it, it's not that the writer of 2 Samuel doesn't know how to explain a rape because that's exactly what's getting explained here. So there is a difference between what happened with David and Bathsheba, but it's, it's a lot of the same stuff, right? Tamar isn't 
Amnon's to take. Like he has no right to take her. They're not married, right? He's not ready to take responsibility for it. He's a child that wants his own way on things. So when it says in this verse, in verse 11, it says he took hold of her, that is absolutely a rape situation. She can't, she has no control in this situation. And therefore she bears no guilt in this situation under the law. But she answered him, no, my brother, do not force me for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. Sorry, Clark, so you guys get to talk about this on your ride. Like, <laughs> this is what you showed up for. So this is PG-13 tonight. We'll keep it in that category. It's in the Bible. It's stuff we need to talk about sometimes. But she does what's right under the law. She's supposed to refuse somebody if they're forcing it, and she does. Because Jewish girls are taught from a young age, if some guy does this, you refuse him. You fight and you kick and you yell and you scream. Don't fall into the, the modern idea of, oh, this silent thing where you freeze up. Nonsense. Don't freeze up. Make that choice before you're ever in the situation. Do everything you can do to fight when this happens. And she does. No, my brother, don't force me. No such thing should be done in Israel. Don't do this disgraceful thing. She points out the sin. This is not only evil, it's disgraceful. You will lose the grace of the people around you if you do this. Don't do it. It's wrong and it lacks grace. The word there is nebala, which means it has no sense. It's folly and it's wicked. What you're doing, Amnon, doesn't help you. And it won't help you. She's a princess. This is the kind of woman she's been raised with dignity and honor. She knows how to stand up for herself. Verse 13, And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold you from me, withhold me from you. She is really diplomatic here. Like she's using every tool she's got to get out of this situation. She points out that she would be put to shame. So if there's any love there, Amnon should care about the shame he's going to put on her, right? Because he says he loves her. But she doesn't, he doesn't seem to care about her reputation or her honor. Then you're going to be one of the fools. I love this kind of reference to the Torah. She quickly points like, when she says one of the fools of Israel, she's talking about all these stories that we've been going through for the past four years. You're going to, be one of the, you're going to go down in history as the fool, which is exactly what he is in this chapter of the Bible. Think of what you're doing, Amnon. You're going, to be, you're going to be recorded as one of these people. So she mentions the reputation. She mentions God's word. And then she says, speak to the king. So as David being the final earthly authority, it is not unheard of in the ancient world that half-siblings would marry each other. So she's sending him to David, I think because she believes David would say no to this whole situation. It just puts some time and distance. But it gives Amnon hope that it could happen, which gets her out of the situation. This is really strategic. Maybe she knew this was coming and she had her stuff ready to go because she kind of suspected this. Reputation, God's word, and then last but not least, let's put a ring on it. If you want to do this, go to David, let's make it official, and you can, we, we can do this. Leviticus 18.11, The nakedness of my father's wife, begotten of thy father, she is your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. That's the law. So by sending him to David, she's sending him to that law, Right? Shouldn't do this. So under Jewish law, this shouldn't be happening. However, verse 14, he would not heed her voice. Being stronger than she, he forced her to lay with her. Again, the Bible knows how to describe this. So when you get weird theories about Bathsheba, don't listen to them. The Bible knows exactly how to explain this kind of a situation. It's gross and horrible and rotten. Amnon and Tamar is pretty direct language. The writer notes both of these situations and he notes the behavior of Amnon and he notes the behavior of Tamar because the writer of 2 Samuel wants us to know that Tamar's innocent. She did nothing wrong. She did everything according to the law. That means she gets an adventure of blood in this situation. Somebody for her, from her family has a right to deal the death penalty to whoever did this to her. Right? So it's really important under Jewish law that it's clear that's, the, that's there. I think there's a lesson in here for the ladies. Ladies, guys will say whatever they want. They'll buy you things. They will, they will pretend to be really, really nice. But if they're not willing to wait till marriage, they don't love you. Amen. It's a really simple equation. If they love you, they'll wait. And, and it'll be something that's beautiful if that's the case. When guys push for a sexual relationship before marriage, that's called lust. That's not honor, and it's not dignity, and it's not a man of God with a backbone that can control himself. Don't marry that guy. 
wait. So, guys, we'll get to you in a second. Girls, if you love the guy and you love God, you love the reputation and you love the word of God, make the guy wait. It's a great gift to give your husband on a wedding night. Wonderful gift. Thanks, honey. I appreciate that. It's a great gift, and it's precious, and God made it to be beautiful. He didn't mean it to be twisted. He made it to be awesome. In verse 15, then Amnon hated her exceedingly. Look at how quick his love just disappeared. He, he rapes her, and then he hates her exceedingly. This is a weird psychological phenomenon, but it's real. Guys fixate over a girl, and then when they get what they want, they're so guilty of what they've done, they hate the thing that they were fixated on. And that love turns into hatred instantly. Right? So that hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, arise and be gone. Get out of here. Wow, that's horrible. I wonder if he even said thank you for the cakes. But that's the side point. He hated her. Guilt leads to this. So Tamar doing everything right, just got raped. She deserves an avenger of blood under the law. Someone in her family, the head of that household, should take responsibility for killing Amnon. He needs to go down. Because if he's capable of this, think of what else he's capable of. So that judgment needs to happen. Then Amnon hated her. So oh, she said to him, verse 16, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Again, under the law, if a man is, entices a maid that's not betrothed or married to lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. At the very least, Amnon should have taken her into his household and taken responsibility for her, right? So that's Exodus twenty-two sixteen. So by kicking her out, Amnon's making this even worse because now she's been raped and she's going to have a lot harder time finding a husband in the Jewish culture in this era. No, indeed, the evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, here, put this woman out away from me. Notice how he just reduces her to this woman. Not princess, not child of the king, not daughter of God, not a, a woman of Israel, but this woman. Like, so it gets really ugly quick. Away from me and bolt the door behind her. Now she had a robe on of many colors. I think the reason the writer throws that in is she's a princess. So she wears expensive clothes and she's in that thing. For the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel and his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Expensive, valuable, royal, precious, beautiful. Tamar was God's child that just got defiled. She immediately makes a display of her grief and tragic loss of virginity. Again, she's following the law to the T. When raped, you say something about it. You let people know. You don't let sin be a secret in this situation. We've got a lot of modern psychologists saying, but that's so hard to do. And then it relives the tragedy. No, reliving the tragedy is to keep it secret for 20 years and not tell anybody. To get it dealt with, now you can find some justice and maybe a little peace after something like this. She does what the Bible says to do. She makes a display of it, right? So verse 19, then Tamar put ashes on her head, tore her robe of many colors that was on her, laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. Everybody in the household knows what just happened, right? She makes it very clear to everybody who is there on the day of. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Don't this, take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. These are some really complex reactions that people have to this, right? So Absalom, let's start with Absalom in verse 22. He just plays it cool. And we're going to learn about Absalom, that he is a plotting, planning, deliberate, shifty guy. So he just keeps it cool with Amnon, and, and he's starting to plan how he's going to take care of this. I think as son, the person responsible for, re, for bringing justice here is David himself. He's the head of all of these households. He's the dad in the situation. So the fact that David hears these things and gets angry in verse 21, that's interesting. He shouldn't get angry. He should get even. This should be David. David should react to this, and under the law, he should have Amnon killed. Because that's what's deserving here. Not Amnon and Tamar. Tamar did everything she should do to be innocent of this. But Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Everybody knows what happened. It's public knowledge. 
David does nothing. This is the same thing as not going out to battle and fighting God's battle. He doesn't take care of his household. He's permissive with Amnon when he asks to be fed from somebody's hand. How ridiculous is that for a grown man? And now he's passive and doesn't deal with the fact that, that, that he's done something truly evil, right? This is the whole, my child can do no wrong syndrome. And he doesn't deal with it. Don't take this thing to heart. Absalom assures his sister, don't worry about this. I got this. And whether or not David does something, Absalom is going to do something on this. But he waits two years before he makes his move. That tells us a little bit, Amnon, and who he was. So David is angry, but he's indignantly inactive, right? This isn't justice. To be mad about something isn't to make it right. So he, he then, Absalom is going to do his thing. We should know about sheep shearing. That the, in the ancient world, sheep shearing was like a big party day. It was a festival. It was a lot of work, so you got all your friends and family. It's like moving day. Bring all your friends and family. You hang out, but you also have a big feast. It's when you pay off all your workers because money gets changed hands. So it's a big party day. So verse 23, that's what's going on. It came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king, this is David, said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be a burden to you. Like, we don't want too many people there, because you've got to then feed us all. This is a festival day. Then they, he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. And then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Abnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? Maybe, maybe David's suspicious. Maybe he knows darn well that Absalom's going to avenge his sister. Because David didn't do it. So now he's got to worry about that. But then Absalom, verse 27, urged him. So he said, Amnon and all the king's sons to go with him. David again relents to his son that has a weird request. Absalom won't let the evil lie, and he curses everyone in the family. So two full years. Verse 28, now Absalom had commanded his servant, saying, Watch now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. When I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose. Each one got on his mule and fled. First of all, this is to me a comedic image. A whole huge group of people all hopping on mules. <laughs> right? So they're all like, run, run away. And they're going like mule speed, right? These aren't like stall Arabian stallions. These are mules. So they're all running away at like half speed. Anyways, why are they all running? Because they think Ab Absalom's making a move for the kingship. And again, this is common with the Philistines, the Assyrians. When a crown prince dies like Amnon, who's going to be next in line is then up for grabs. So what would happen is when somebody took a kingship, they would kill everybody else in the family that might have a claim to the throne. This is why all the brothers are running. They're seeing that Amnon just got killed and Absalom's making the move. So they're getting the heck out of there. None of David's kids trust or love each other. Like compare this to the McGrath family, right? This is the opposite of a godly family. These people don't trust each other. They don't love one another. The other idea here is that, and I thought this was interesting, the way in which Absalom uses alcohol to get somebody drunk before he kills them is exactly what David did to Uriah. Remember he got him drunk? before he gave other people the command to kill him. Absalom's seeing what his father did, and he's just taking that sin to the next level. But he's doing, who's to say he's guilty? His dad? Because his dad would be a total hypocrite if he did that. So David has lost the high ground. He's lost the moral authority in his own family, and his sons are doing exactly what he did. Like father, like son. Or the sins of the fathers become the sins of the son. So verse 30, it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. So this is bad information. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. And then Jonadab, the son of Shimea, wait a second, isn't Jonadab the guy who started all this mess? Now he comes back, David's brother answered and said, let my not, Lord not suppose they've killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he was forced on his sister Tamar. Who is this Jonadab guy and why is he such a slimy scumbag? 
Jonadab's the guy that told Amnon to do this in the first place. And now he's like David's buddy. And he's the advisor that has the good information. Like sliding in, using his position to get in good with David. Verse 33, now therefore let not my lord the king take this thing to heart. Don't worry about it. To think that all the king's sons are dead for only Amnon is dead. Everybody knows Amnon had it coming. Absalom has killed them. David would, it's odd that David tears his robes, which means he knows, he believes the story when he hears it, which tells us something about his attitude towards Absalom. He believes he has a son named Absalom that's capable of killing all the other sons. And he just takes this news and he buys it right off the bat, which tells you something about Absalom. Like, this is a scary little kid, right, who's grown into a man and he's, David knows that he's got stuff going on here. And then uh, Absalom fled, verse 34. The young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him, all on their little mules, you know, <laughs> moving, moving very slow. Um, and Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming. And his servant said, So it is. And they're coming very slowly. <laughs> so it was, as soon as he finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted their voice and wept, voice and wept, and the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. This is a bad day for David's family. Now we got killing going on within the household. When's the killing going to end? So David mourns the loss of his crown prince. Amnon was the next in line, um, but he also knows the law. He was responsible to make this right, and he didn't do it. Here's the law: Deuteronomy 22, verse 28. If a man finds a damsel that is a virgin which is not betrothed and lay hold on her and lie with her and they be found, then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father 50 shekels of, shekels, 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He may not put her away all of his days. You're supposed to marry her, right? If, you have, if there's premarital sex, that in God's eyes, it's done. You're married. It doesn't go any further than that. And the 50 shekels of silver, is the stand, it would be the dowry price or the price you'd pay to that family to, to, to claim the daughter. David, when he found out about all this stuff with Absalom, should have followed the law. Should have gone to Amnon and said, Amnon, it looks like you're married. We're going to close this deal. We're going to get you a marriage certificate. It's not a happy marriage because you sure started it off wrong, but it's going to be a, you're going to take care of this woman for the rest of your life. You may hate her, but you're going to feed her because she's not going to be as, as desirable for other guys that want to know that who they're married was a virgin when they married her. Again, this is part cultural, but it's also part, partly under the law that, guys, if you want to have your way with a woman, you should be ready to start a family with that woman. And nothing short of that. Take the responsibility for what you want. But Absalom fled and went to Telmai, the son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. Remember that the king of Geshur is Absalom's grandpa because his mom was a Gesherite. He goes to the other side of the family to hang out. The reason Absalom's doing this is because he just killed Amnon, which means that Amnon's family, if they feel this is done unjustly, would have an avenger of blood come after. This is how these vengeance things start to happen, right? Absalom believes what he did was right, but he doesn't run to a city of refuge because when the courts are done, he actually did premeditate and kill his brother. So he doesn't run to a city of refuge. He runs to another country and gets out of there. And David mourned for his son every day. Once again, he doesn't do anything about it. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. Seemingly, David knew that Amnon going down was the right thing to do. If you're not going to get married to Tamar, you're gonna, you need to be killed for the rape. So he's comforted in, the, in that sense, but... Um, again, David kind of has a, a bleeding heart for his kids. Like he, he won't discipline them, but he also loves them and he cares for them and he wishes for them to do right, but he doesn't do it. So he's there three years. When you move outside of Israel and you move outside of the legal and moral code of Israel, what is Absalom learning when he's in Gesher for three years? Which we'll find out in the coming chapters. But he actually learns a completely different moral code and he learns a way of doing things uh, where David's going to have problems with him himself, and this indulgent son is going to come back and be a problem for David's kingship. So the consequences continue. Again, we're kind of on David's downhill slope. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and the lessons that can be learned from it. Uh, Lord, as we cover topics about relationships and about vengeance and, and whatnot, Lord, help our hearts to seek justice but love mercy. Lord, you tell us that your 
You don't want our sacrifices. You want a contrite heart. And we know that, Lord. So, Lord, forgive any wicked way that's in me and get rid of it. Lord, if you need to put me through trials, if you need to, to purge me of sin, do it. I don't have time for the sin, Lord. You only give me so many days on this earth and I want to serve you with everything I have. So, Lord, if there's any wicked way in me, search it out and purge it and do surgery and get rid of it. Lord, I pray for each soul in this room. Help us to get rid of the sin in our life. And, and if we have to go through some things to make that happen, Lord, bring it. Um, and Lord, help us to, as a fellowship, to love one another, to show grace from one another. Lord, our job isn't to point fingers at one another, but if there's sins that, that we need to point out to each other, Lord, I just pray that it goes like Nathan and David, uh, that we're good friends, that there's a good relationship there, that there's a fellowship there. Um, Lord, that we can rebuke each other and admonish one another and do it in love um, and do it out of a relationship. Lord, because we love one another and love sometimes means doing the right thing. Uh, Lord, I'm so glad that you taught Israel these laws and you created Western civilization on the basis of these moral frameworks and stories that you defined rape as evil and wrong. Thank you for doing that. Uh, Lord, that's so different than what we see in a number of other religions in ancient work. Lord, that early on you claimed what was right and what was wrong and what was good and, and your law is good and it is righteous to the end of this age. So Lord, if we know of sin in, in, in our own lives, help us to get rid of it. Uh, Lord, help us to not have shame uh, over past sins, but Lord, to repent, to turn, and to move forward as you would call us to do. Bless our hearts and fill us with joy um, and worship, Lord. Help us to return to the house of worship after we've dealt with these things and know that you're a good and a loving God and that you are big enough to handle a number of sins that are egregious, Lord, and you can still love people and hate the sin but love the sinner. Lord, do the same with us. We thank you for your gift of Jesus Christ that's the propitiation, Lord, that you gave your only son to die for our sins. And Lord, you gave images and um, typologies of that throughout the Old Testament, that image of a sacrificial um, child. Lord, that would die for our sins. We just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.